MacCast, Sunday, October 30th, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be sitting down here with you for another week of Apple hints, tips, rumors, all the goings-ons in the Apple and Macintosh community. How you doing? Hopefully you are having a wonderful day, week, weekend, evening, vacation, whatever it might be that you're doing while you listen to this podcast. Some of you even do uh, work. As I understand it, you're either doing errands or working around the house or doing yard work or whatever it might be. So hopefully you are enjoying yourself and having a good time. We have quite a few things to get into in this episode of the MacCast. Looking over the show notes here, we do have Apple's Q4 earnings to get into. And uh, yeah, no spoilers, but I think you know how they might have turned out. We're going to talk about what's happening with those new MacBook Pros. I'm going to talk about some pricing changes that came to Apple. We're going to get into some advertising stuff that we've been talking about over the past few weeks. And of course, because we have all new products recently released, we've got rumors of what might be next. And that's going to round out the news for this week. And then we're going to get into some iPad questions about backups. We're going to talk about some keyboard shortcuts, some new ones that I was unaware of that I want to share with you. Actually, a listener pointed those out for us. And then I have a HomePod question, and that will round out this episode of the MacCast. So it should be a good one. So lock in, kick back, and uh, I say, here we go. So Apple had its Q4 earnings call for 2022. And yes, it turned out to be record numbers almost across the board. Uh, numbers were very good. Apple posted a record $90.1 billion in revenue for the quarter. That was up 8% versus the same period last year. The company also said that total revenue was up 8%. Overall, coming in at $394.3 billion for Apple's fiscal year. So quite, quite impressive. Uh, the breakdown as goes for the entire year, all categories were up to record levels, except one. $205 billion for iPhone sales or revenues, $78 billion for services revenues, $41 billion for wearables revenues, and $40 billion for Mac revenues. How strange is it that we're in a place where uh, Mac revenue is one of the smaller revenues for Apple? Those of us who've been around in the community remember when it was just Mac, but obviously Apple has grown as a company. They've got all kinds of products with AirPods and Apple Watches, and of course, iPhone. About the only thing that didn't increase year over year was iPad revenue. That was down 13% from $32 billion last year to $29 billion this year. Overall, Apple's services growth was pretty impressive, and that was thanks to an increase in paid subscribers. Apple doesn't unfortunately break down which services people pay for, but they said that uh, paid subscriptions were up 154 million compared to a year ago, and they've actually moved past 
past 900 million subscribers well on their way to a billion which probably should happen in the next or within the next quarter or so so we'll have to see how that turns out apple cfo luca maestri warned that mac sales though in december are expected to take a bit of a decline or in the december quarter i guess i should say versus last year because last year you may remember by october they did have those m1 versions new updated versions of the MacBook Pros out with the M1 Pro and M1 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 Max processors, excuse me. Um, but as you know, this year, those MacBook Pro updates remain to be seen. We haven't seen updates to the 14 and 16 inch MacBook Pros yet. So the question becomes, will we see those? That was my subtle little way of leading into our next story, which is that the MacBook Pro updates for 2023 may be delayed. Originally, it was believed that Apple would have new 14-inch and 16-inch versions of the MacBook Pros with M2 processors in them sometime by now or maybe in early November. That may not be the case, given those statements made by Apple CFO Luca Maestri in the earnings call and from whispers current whispers in the rumor mill a korean blogger cited supply chain sources this week that claim that updated 14 and 16 inch macbook pro models would not launch until early next year maybe by march and then we had bloomberg's mark german come out and state that he too has now heard that apple has decided to delay the new m2 macbook pro updates or mac updates rather until the first quarter of 2023 because as you remember we are expecting maybe a mac mini m2 update and possibly a m2 version of a mac mini with a pro processor in it so m2 mac mini pro a rumor from Mac Rumors claims that Apple's MacBook Pro updates might even feature faster RAM than we were expecting. The current models use LPDDR5 RAM, and as you may remember from Apple's current M1 specs, that means 200 gigabits per second of memory bandwidth for the M1 Pro chip and 400 gigabits per second of memory bandwidth for the Macs. It's expected that the new machines might be using Samsung's LPDDR5X RAM, which could have a boost of up to 33% in memory bandwidth with a 20% reduction in power consumption. So expecting those new models still to be coming, it just looks like Apple has delayed them maybe till the first quarter of 2023. And you may remember too, we are still expecting those massive Mac Pro systems with the m2 ultra and m2 extreme chips to show up sometime in 2023 i would imagine later in the year than sooner but definitely new macs are on the way just looks like we might be done for this year and speaking of services it looks like apple finally did decide to follow in the footsteps of many of their streaming competitors and raise prices Apple increased prices for Apple TV+, Plus, Apple Music, and by proxy, the Apple One bundles. I was hoping this was something that wouldn't happen, that Apple would keep their prices super competitive, but they have their reasons, as we'll talk about here in a second. Apple Music went up $1 US per month for individuals and $2 per month 
for families. Apple TV Plus also went up U.S. $2 per month. And of course, adjustments will be made in other countries and regions, I'm sure. That also means that the Apple One bundles, which include both of those services, Apple TV Plus and Apple Music, were increased by $3 per month, totaling the, the total increases, which makes complete sense. Apple claims that they're raising Apple Music service pricing due to increased licensing costs and that it will benefit the artists as they will earn more for their streaming music. They turn around and justify the increases to Apple TV Plus by saying, hey, when we launched, we didn't have that much content, so it was priced accordingly. Now we have a lot more award-winning content and uh, we're raising the prices. So again, I was hoping they would keep them low. I think that would have been a nice play. With all the revenue they're making and money in the bank, I think they could afford to do that. But of course, Apple always wanted to keep an eye on that bottom line and keep that service services revenue growing. So they are increasing those prices. Be curious to see if that changes anybody's mind about keeping their Apple services. I'm thinking that Apple feels pretty strongly that those almost 900 million paid subscribers are pretty locked into the Apple ecosystem. I have to say with me, they're right on the money. I'm not planning on canceling my Apple TV Plus or Apple Music subscription. Actually, I'm on the Apple One bundle, if truth be told. And I'm going to stick with that bundle. An extra $3 per month, uh, it stings a little, but it's not going to kill me. And uh, I'll probably cut back on some of my other services to offset a little bit of that pain. But I'm curious... What will you be doing? Are you going to be hanging on to your subscriptions? Or is this the straw that broke the camel's back? Apple raising prices. Does that do anything for you? Give me some feedback. Maccast at gmail.com. We've been talking a little bit uh, recently about Apple's advertising and the fact that they want to increase revenues on advertising. And it looks like they're t- starting to take some steps to make that happen Apple added more locations in the App Store where developers can advertise their apps, and it caused a little bit of a kerfuffle this past week. In the App Store's main Today tab, you can start running ads if you're a developer, and they also added uh, a You Might Also Like section to the bottom of individual app listing pages. It's that second one that caused a little bit of trouble. Adding the ads to the Today tab is a little bit significant because that is a content section that until now was completely 100% controlled by Apple's in-house editorial staff. So the fact that you can now run an ad in that section or pay for being in that section is a little bit interesting. But almost immediately, that new You Might Also Like section had developers calling foul. That's because it allowed anyone to run ads within an individual developer's app page, basically. And immediately, ads for gambling and other seedy adult-style apps started appearing on pages for legit and popular developers' apps. And why wouldn't you do that? If you're going to the popular app pages, you're going to want to get your your app promoted in that section. Of course, that didn't make those developers too happy, and they took to Twitter and other outlets to complain. Not long after complaints from the developers started rolling in, Apple said in a statement to Mac Rumors that, quote, we have paused ads related to gambling and a few other categories on App Store product pages. So Apple going to maybe have a little bit of a rethink on how they're doing things there. At least maybe they should uh, do one-for-one age approach 
appropriate ads. Uh, a lot of those ads were showing up for, you know, 18 plus rated a- apps in 12 plus or, or younger rated uh, apps. And so it'd be pretty bad if they started showing, especially in younger kids apps, ads for gambling and uh, let's say more adult style content. Obviously, Apple doesn't have full adult content, but basically they were seeing dating apps and, and uh therapy apps and just other non-appropriate content in those sections. So I don't think they really thought that through too much. And uh, yeah, they're going to have to kind of revamp on that. Another thing that Apple also changed in its app store was its policies regarding in-app purchases around boosts or boosted content. This is the kind of content where you can kind of pay to better promote your tweets or your Instagram posts. Uh, Previously, developers were not having to pay Apple's in-app purchase 30%. For that, but this week Apple changed the wording in its rules to say digital purchases for content that is experienced or consumed in an app, including buying advertisements to display in the same app, sales such as boosts for posts on social media app, must use Apple in-app purchases and subsequently would be subject to the 30% fee that Apple takes for said in-app purchases. The new rules do exclude apps that are designed for the sole purpose of selling or managing ads. For that, Apple says apps for the sole purpose of allowing advertisers, persons, or companies to advertise a product or service or event, to purchase and manage advertising campaigns across media types, television, outdoor, websites, apps, etc., do not need to use in-app purchase. These apps are intended for campaign management purposes and do not display the advertisements themselves. So Apple only collecting in-app purchases from apps where you would actually pay to have advertising of said post or information within the directly within the app that uh, folks might be using. So again, they seem to be targeting things like Facebook and Instagram with this, just to, another kind of volley in Apple's sort of advertising battle with those services. And of course, they came out immediately and kind of said that Apple was targeting them and were railing against this. I don't I don't know how I feel about this. It's interesting that this went on. Now, for Apple's part, they say that these rules were always in place, but just that they had never enforced them before. I'm not sure why they wouldn't have done that, but they say that this new language is simply a clarification of those rules, and uh, it sounds like they are going to be uh, looking for their 30% for your boosts on social media now. Moving on, let's talk about uh, the latest iPhone rumors. Yep, as always happens, we got new iPhones in the past month or so, and uh, it's time to start speculating on what the next one will be. Trendforce out of Taiwan will kick things off by saying that the iPhone 15 Pro models are going to feature an increased 8 gigabytes of RAM, a USB-C port, and multiple camera improvements. Hmm don't think that's too far out there in terms of the rumors yes better cameras uh, more ram better processors maybe yeah those are all coming in the next iphone model I, f- I feel i can safely say that rumor they say the pro models are going to get a new a17 bionic with the non-pros getting the a16 update so kind of sticking to the trend that apple put out this year with only the newest processor going into the pro models they also say that apple will switch to USB-C, which again is not too surprising considering that apple vp of marketing marketing this week greg joswiak said at the wall street 
Journal's Tech Live conference that Apple would move to USB-C on the iPhone to comply with that new EU mandate for a common charger standard across all consumer electronic devices. Truth be told, and I think I said this on previous episodes of the MacCast, I think Apple was already planning on moving to USB-C, so I don't think this is a really big deal. But hey, they're making it somewhat official, saying that they uh, will be moving to USB-C on future iPhones. They didn't give a timeline, but I have a feeling it will be with the next model. For the camera, uh, the Trend Force piece says to expect the Pro model to have the new rumored Periscope tel- telephoto lane lens, which means that Apple could increase the optical zoom up to 10x. And they also expect an upgraded main lens with an 8P design, meaning that the Apple would add in one more uh, optical element for better camera performance. And then Ming-Chi Kuo is out saying that Apple does plan to replace the volume and power buttons on the next iPhone, the iPhone 15 model, with solid-state buttons instead of physical clickable ones. He says that Apple would use another Taptic engine to simulate clicks, much like the old home button that was solid-state and uh, used a Taptic engine. So... Uh, I think this makes sense. It's going to help with dust intrusion and waterproofing and uh, no reason why Apple couldn't pull that off. I would imagine in the past it was probably hard to get a kind of taptic engine that'll fit in there, but it sounds like they're going to solve that problem with the next iPhone models. So not sure this is going to be a big deal to anybody not to have a physical clickable button, but a simulated clickable button. Uh, but it sounds like that might happen with the uh, with the next model. And lest the iPad get left out on the upcoming rumors, the site The Information says that we are still expecting a larger iPad Pro, something that would be in the works for a release sometime next year. They claim that Apple has been playing around with a 16-inch version of the iPad to bring it somewhat in line with their 16-inch MacBook Pro kind of tightening the gap between the MacBooks and the iPads maybe a little bit. We had heard rumors similar from Mark Gurman and Ross Young that larger iPads were in the works, but Young had previously mentioned a 14.1-inch size, not this new larger 16-inch size. So I think it's inevitable that Apple will upscale the iPad Pro at some point. This piece didn't specifically mention the iPad Pro, but I have to imagine that that's where Apple would start with a new larger iPad, something that would be really targeted at content creators and artists and photographers, people like that. The report says that the new iPad would be coming sometime in the fourth quarter of 2023, which makes sense in the timeline. Apple generally generally releases new iPad Pros like they did this year sometime in the October timeframe, so that would line up with all of that. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor, and that is NordVPN. Are you missing out on your favorite show because it's not available in your region? Or maybe you're wanting to keep your data and information private. Well, let me introduce you to NordVPN. One thing I know that's frustrating for me is region locks on streaming content. You've been there. I think we've all been there. You hear about a great new show from a friend who maybe lives in another country only to find out that you can't stream it in yours. NordVPN solves that problem with a click of the button. You have access to more than 5,000 server options, so 
no show is out of reach for you. Using my link, nordvpn.com slash maccast, you can actually receive a huge discount on a two-year plan, plus you get four free months. And what about privacy? I worry about my data, especially when I'm out and about using open Wi-Fi hotspots and access points when I'm traveling, maybe at a cafe or at an event. In these situations, NordVPN is perfect because it helps protect your information, keeping it encrypted and private so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. NordVPN also offers a new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash maccast to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four months for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund so you can pretend the entire situation never even happened. Use my link, nordvpn.com slash maccast, to get your subscription started today. And a big thank you to NordVPN for their support of the MacCast. Want to kick off the feedback this week with a really great question from a listener, Dan. He wrote in to ask about backing up an iPad without a Mac. And the reason he did this was he said he's considering recommending that his parents switch to just using an iPad as their main computer instead of a Mac. They have a Mac now, but they're getting older and just don't need the complications in their life. And I, I feel like I have a lot of people in my lives, uh, my in-laws and also my mom, who only use an iPad as their only computer. They don't own a Mac. They don't have a Mac. And uh, he, Dan, was wondering about backup. And that's something that I wonder about myself. Um, Both my parents and in-laws use iCloud. But, you know, is that really the best thing for backup? Do you want to trust Apple with all of your data and being the only backup. You know me, I'm a backup fanatic. I have multiple versions. I have archive, I have offline, I have at my house. And Dan was wondering about the same thing. He says specifically for for photos and photo storage, one concern he has is that a base level 64 gigabyte iPad, like the new iPad entry level model that just came out, is likely not going to be enough storage to contain a full entire photo library, at least not for a lot of people, his parents included. And he said that would mean they'd have to use the optimized storage option if they're using iCloud and iCloud photo library. And that then means that not all of their photos would be locally stored on the device. So they would only be backed up in iCloud and same would go for documents and files and all those other sorts of things. So he says, you know, what are the options? What can you do to actually back up an iPad outside of iCloud backup and iCloud photo library? And unfortunately, Dan, the answer, as far as I know, are not much, or is rather not much. There's not many options uh, with an iPad. If you have an iPad as your only device, it typically does mean relying on iCloud as your one and only backup option. And it sounds like you're like me. That doesn't make you super comfortable. Um, One thing you need to make sure you do if you are using iCloud as your only backup uh, is that you get enough storage to store everything, including your photo library. I know with my family, I had to jump up to the largest plan, and that still is getting pretty tight. It might not be enough. Both my wife and my daughter have massive iCloud photo libraries. So 
we're running out of storage quickly. I know you can continue to buy more with multiple plans. I think it ends up being individual, even though you're on a family plan. So once you've hit the two terabyte limit, if you need additional options, you have to do it on a per user basis, I believe. I haven't gotten that far yet, but I think that's where we're going to end up. But the point is, make sure you have enough backup for that iPad. But again, still isn't the best option. And that's why I recommend actually having a Mac because it is really your best, I think, current option. I'm going to talk about some other ones and maybe the community has some ideas as well uh, getting around this without a Mac. But if you have a Mac, what's great is that you can set up your Macintosh or at least one Mac to be kind of the source of truth for your data. So on that Mac, you make sure that uh, all of your files and documents store locally. And you also make sure with your iCloud backup that you're not using optimized storage on that Mac, but that you choose the option to have all of your photos downloaded to that single Mac. And then what you can do is also occasionally connect your iPad or iPhone to that Mac and make a local backup. So, you know, go into the Finder, actually make a local backup. And then what's great is that local backup will be in addition to your iCloud backups and that local backup can get backed up by your other processes. So if you do a local clone backup or if you also do, say, online backup with something like Backblaze, all of that data would get backed up, including all of your photos, everything. And so that way you're in control. You have a backup of everything that's on your iPad in addition to what's in iCloud. So I think that's a really good option. Um, and then you can have those on an external drive and, and all that sort of stuff. So that's the way I would go. And that's what I do with my own iPad. But uh, what are you going to do in a situation where you don't have a Mac? Let's talk about that a little bit. So say you don't want to have a Mac, you only have an iPad. One of your only options might be to save off your files manually using an external USB-C hard drive. So uh, current iOS, iPadOS can actually use external drives, either through the Lightning connector or better yet now through the USB-C hard drive. Uh, one thing to note, if you are going with the current 10th generation iPad, even though it has a USB-C port, it's not Thunderbolt. So it's limited to the traditional Lightning speeds to USB 2 speeds, which isn't too bad, um, but just something to be aware of. But I would say get an external USB-C hard drive. I would recommend an SSD drive, something like the Samsung T7. I actually just got one of these for my wife to back up her um, MacBook Pro or MacBook Air rather too. And they're really nice. They're USB bus powered. They plug in with just the USB-C cable and they do work with the iPad. You can get a one terabyte for about 110 bucks US. So not too expensive. Prices have come down. Uh, that's a pretty good deal for an SSD. And you can then connect it directly to your iPad. And then for photos, you can actually go into photos you can select the photos you want to back up, so manually select them. And then when you tap the share button, you choose the save to files option, and that will bring up the file browser. And then you can pick the SSD from the files panel and then save your photos to that. If the photos are in iCloud, they will need to download first. So if you're using optimized storage, expect that. That could take a little bit of time. I don't know what happens if you run out of local storage. It should, I would imagine, rotate those out. But if you 
select too many at a time, that might be a problem. So you might have to play around with that. But it will download them first, and then it will save them off to the SSD, the the originals, I'm assuming. Uh, similarly, you can save files from the Files app by copying them from Files app to that external drive. So you could back up documents and things like that. It is, unfortunately, a manual process, so less than ideal. I don't know of a way you can really automate that. Um, and you may want to get two external drives so that you can swap them out. You can have one locally at your house, and then you can take one to another location for a secure off-site backup of your data so that in case you have a house fire, theft, or something like that, you are still protected with your data. So that might be one way to go. But definitely this got me thinking, you know, why has not why has Apple not come up with time machine support for iOS? You know, on our Macs, we can save to a network time machine drive why can't we do that with an iPad or an iPhone? That would be really, really nice. And I'm not sure why that hasn't happened, but just got me thinking about that. And then related to that, I thought, well, maybe there are some NAS solution, network attached storage solutions out there that can get around this Mac problem. And actually Synology with their Synology drive is one good example. They have an app and it will actually create a photo backup of your entire library, or you can also uh, ask it to just back up new photos, uh, which would be a great option, I think, if you have that optimized storage option turned on. So anytime new photos come in, it will automatically back those up to your Synology network attached storage drive over the uh, over your local network. Uh, you can also set it up for syncing operations with specific files or folders. So that would be great for uh, some of your other data. Again, it's a little bit more of a manual process. You've got to set up and configure it. A Synology might be a little bit tricky for your parents and maybe gets back to the original problem of, hey, a Mac is getting a little bit too complicated. Synology cloud backup uh, or Synology drive backup, which basically sets up kind of like a personal cloud, would be an option for that, but might be something you have to help them set up. Um, in their network, but it would, you know, back up wirelessly and they wouldn't have to kind of really think about that too much. Although I think you still have to open up the Synology Drive app. So I don't know if that can be fully automated or not. I haven't played around with it too much, but it should work. So that's one option. I'm sure there's other NAS solutions out there and maybe some of you in our community have been using some of those. So if anyone else has ideas or solutions for backing up iOS devices and specifically a photo library uh, without a Mac, uh, shoot us some emails or audio comments and tips, maccast at gmail.com. But that was a couple that I could think of, Dan, and we'll have to see what the community can come up with. But I'm sure they're going to have some amazing ideas, and I will share those on future episodes of the MacCast. Here's another cool little thing that was pointed out to me this week by Cohen, and it has to do with some keyboard shortcuts that I was unaware of. Many of you probably know about the FN or the globe key that might be on your Mac keyboard, the function key um, or FN key. It seems like that there are some shortcuts for accessing some items on the Mac using the function key. And I was not aware of these keyboard shortcuts. I don't know when they showed up. Um, when I got 
Cohen's email, I had already upgraded to macOS Ventura, and I don't know which version of macOS Cohen was running, but I tested these on macOS Ventura, and they definitely work there, so I don't know if they were recently added, because part of the reason I'm bringing this up is I could not find any documentation or information of these keyboard shortcuts existing. They may be related to accessibility. That's kind of one theory on this. Um, but I didn't need to enable any additional accessibility features to actually use these. But these are pretty cool. So if you hold the FM key down and type A, you could access your dock. Um, and that way you can actually arrow between different items in your dock and then tap the space bar or hit the enter key to actually access that item from your dock or launch that application from your dock. So kind of a, another option for uh, if a lot of us, if you're like me, you use the spotlight as a launcher, you know, where you hit command space bar and then type the name of your app and hit enter or use that for app switching, or also just another way to do the kind of command tab switching, you can do function A and access anything that is in your dock. There's also function key plus H, which gives you the view of your desktop. So it basically activates expose and shows you your desktop. You can use FN plus the N key to act to access the notification center on your Mac. If you use the FN key plus Q, it opens up the quick note feature in the notes app. So you can quickly take a note. Uh, you can use FN plus the C key to access the control center. FN plus the E key to show emojis and symbols. So the little emoji palette. Um, a lot of us know command control spacebar also accesses that uh, emoji palette. You can use FN plus D to start dictation. And also if you have a dictation enabled on your Mac, uh, traditionally, it's set up so if you tap the FN key twice, that also enables dictation on your Mac. FN plus F enters full screen mode in your apps. And there might be more of these. Those are the ones that I could find. Like I said, I couldn't find any documentation on this. So I'm not sure when it showed up or how it showed up, but it was pretty cool. And Cohen, thank you for pointing that out. A few other things related to the FN key on most Macs with dictation enabled. Um, like I said, you can tap the FN key twice, and that can be adjusted from the keyboard settings. So if you go into settings and keyboard, you can change the behavior of the FN key from that to maybe show emojis and symbols, change the input on your keyboard, which is kind of traditionally what the globe key is, key is for. So if you're using multiple keyboard layouts or multiple languages on your Mac, you can change between your different keyboards. And then, like I said, you can also use it to access dictation. Also in the keyboard settings, you can set up the FN key to toggle how you access the actual function keys on your Mac. So by default, I think these days, most Macs come up set up for the Mac keyboard, which has, of course, those special keys for, say, controlling brightness or your keyboard backlight or the media controls or your volume controls, right? And so if you hit those those keys, that's what they do. That obviously gets past the traditional F1, F2 function keys. And normally to activate those, you would hold down the FN key, that function key, and then tap any one of those keys. And that will give you the tra traditional function key functionality. You can toggle this in your keyboard settings and change it so that they're the function keys or the F keys by default. And then that would kind of reverse the situation and you would hold the FN key to access the special features of those keys like the brightness or the media controls or what have you. So 
couple different ways to play around with the FN key. There might be some more uh, hidden features of the FN key. If you happen to know a couple of them and want to share them with us, shoot us an email, send us an audio comment, maccaster at gmail.com. But Cohen, thanks for pointing that out because I don't know if I would have caught that one. And that's a cool little tip for us to be able to share with the community. And then the last thing that I have for you on the show for this week is a question about HomePods. Laurent wrote in to ask about using a HomePod stereo pair with a TV that has the Apple TV app. And this is a TV that's not connected to an Apple TV. It just has the app available to it. As a matter of fact, it happens to be an Android device, he says, and he's loving his HomePod stereo pair for listening to music and doing other things with his iOS devices and his Macs, but he couldn't get the audio running through his TV. His cable provider is free, which is a service in France, and he said, I have two boxes set up, one for internet and telephone, and one dedicated to the TV with an HDMI output and to audio outputs, analog and optical. And he says, how can I solve this problem? Do I have to buy an Apple TV? Because he had heard, you know, with an Apple TV, you can actually do this. And he says, but if I have an Apple TV, how would I be able to access the cable TV content and not have two remotes? Kind of, I think the idea here is like a lot of us, you want less complication, just wants to go through a single set top box. And so, really becomes, how do I get the stereo audio through my TV with the Apple TV app? And then how do I do that and not have to have multiple cable boxes? And so first answer to the question, Laurent, is unfortunately, as far as I know, to be able to play Apple TV content or streaming content through a stereo pair of HomePods hooked up to or connected to your Apple TV, you do have to go through an actual Apple TV, um, an Apple TV 4K. So you'll have to do that. For content like Apple TV Plus and streaming services, Laurent mentioned in his email using Netflix and Amazon Prime. Of course, you have apps for that, and that can all go through your Apple TV and then ultimately play through your stereo-paired HomePods, and it should all work really, really great. To access your cable content, though, as far as I know, you're going to need to have apps for each service or channel that you want to play through your Apple TV uh, to be able to access live TV content and have that audio still go through your stereo-paired HomePods. Luckily for you, I did a little research, and it looks like your cable TV provider free supports Apple TV's provider authentication feature, which means that setting up and accessing the content from those channel apps should be a lot easier. You should be able to just log into your basically your provider through the through the settings on the Apple TV and then any of those third-party apps that you need to download to play live TV content that should automatically be logged into your account, recognize that you're a paid subscriber of that service and give you access to that content. The question becomes, are you going to be able to access all your channels and content from your cable TV provider through the apps and that methodology? Chances are maybe, maybe not. So the other option would be that you're going to have to switch between the inputs of your Apple TV and your cable box. That does mean you're going to have to have both connected, um, but that uh, that way you could play all of your TV content through your cable TV box and then everything else through 
your Apple TV. Of course, that also means that your cable TV content is not going to go through your stereo paired home pods, which is a little bit of a disadvantage. To get around the remote problem, um, you can configure your remote, I'm assuming your cable box remote, to control your Apple TV. Uh, Apple TV does have an option where you can set up other remotes, kind of a universal remote. So you might still be able to stick to just one remote. I actually have this configured with my Apple TV. I have a Samsung TV. I've configured the Samsung remote to be able to control my Apple TV, but personally, I do prefer to use my Siri remote. Um, I don't subscribe to traditional cable TV, though, so it's not a problem for me because I play all my content through Steam on my Apple TV. But you definitely can set up a remote or multiple remotes to work with your Apple TV. So I think you can get around that problem. And then the last thing that Laurent also asked about is, what about a possible delay between the image on my TV and the audio coming out of the stereo-paired HomePods. As far as I know, that should be handled pretty well by the Apple TV, the HomePod, and AirPlay 2, and all the software and integration. Apple does a pretty good job of making sure that all of this works together. You shouldn't see any kind of real delay, but if you do, there is also a feature on the Apple TV where you can use your iPhone to actually listen to and make adjustments to the audio delay. So you can actually um, tap your iPhone, you can go into the settings and turn on what they were set up, what Apple calls wireless audio sync. And when you do that, you kind of tap your iPhone to your Apple TV, it recognizes that there, and then it actually plays a sound and auto configures and sets up the delay adjustment for the audio. So Apple has you covered there. Um, I don't know if I gave you the perfect solution for your problem, but definitely uh, I can tell you if you want to play Apple TV content through a stereo pair of HomePods connected to your television, you are going to have to go with an Apple TV. And I have to say, you probably won't be disappointed if you're an Apple fan, if you're a Mac fan. Um, Apple TV is awesome. It's a way better experience, in my opinion, than any of the Apple TV apps that are built into the smart TVs these days. I mean, it's nice that we have that feature, but I think I talked about on a previous episode of the MacCast some of the pluses and minuses. So if you missed that episode, you might want to go back and listen to that. But I, you know, I think if you're all in with the Apple ecosystem, Apple TV is a good deal, and especially now that they've lowered lowered the prices. Uh, you know, I think 150 bucks for an Apple TV, the higher end one, and I would go for that one with the matter or thread support rather, and some of the other features, especially the additional storage. I think it's a really good deal. And again, um, that's the route I would go. So good luck with that. Uh, let us know how it works out. And um, I'm sure some folks in the community might have additional hints or tips or tricks for us related to uh, stereo paired HomePods and TVs and all that fun stuff. And if you do, shoot us an email, send us an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. But with that, that is going to do it for the episode for this week. Thank you for hanging out with me and uh, taking the time. Appreciate having you here. Before I leave you, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a couple of our show supporters. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. You'll find them at backbeatmedia.com.
As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at MacCast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. <laughs>